What do Benjamin Franklin, Harry Houdini, and Neil Diamond have in common? It's a pretty eclectic list. What do Harry Houdini, Benjamin Franklin, and Neil Diamond have in common? They all ran away from home as a kid. Now, I didn't run away from home. I'm sure I made threats to run away, as most children do at some point when they, you know, either young or become teenagers. I'm going to run away. But some kids go further than making threats. They actually write a note and say, I'm leaving. I'm running away from home. I, I found this week some examples of runaway from home notes written by kids, and I want to share a few with you. These are real, I think. But they made me laugh. This one, it says, Mom, I'm going to run away tomorrow at 9.30 when you and Dad are sleeping. Be sure to say goodbye forever, Emily. This next one, it says, By the time you read this, I might be leaving. If you want to see me again, I will be at the first McDonald's that you see when you go right from our house. I love you. <laughs> so, you know, it took a little bit of a turn. Weren't expecting that. This third one, Mom, I ran away not because you're mean or anything. I only wanted to meet the Spice Girls, Sarah. Now, those are quite funny. I, I think getting a note like that would be pretty cute, but how scary would it be to actually get a real one? Mom, dad, I'm leaving. I'm running away. Sometimes I think, what would I do as a parent? What would I do? I'm, I'm sure that I would drop everything and look for them. I imagine that I would pray like crazy, harder than I've ever prayed before. I imagine that I would experience a lot of grief as I thought through, hey, they, they felt like their life was better off without me. I bet I would feel anger. I bet there's part of me that would want to go and talk some sense into them. There's probably another part of me that would want to scare them from ever doing that again. I feel all of those things. How would you respond to getting a I'm running away from home note? How would you respond? And for some today listening, you don't have to imagine that you've actually experienced that. I mean, perhaps a child or somebody that you've been in a relationship with has actually run away physically. Or somebody that you love has run away emotionally. Maybe they stayed in the house physically, but emotionally they ran away. And you're very familiar of the, the fear that you felt, just the sheer helplessness of wanting something so bad of them to come home or reconcile, and you can't control any of it. You, you know well the, the feelings of anger and sadness, the, the deep sense of hurt maybe that you experienced, the guilt, the shame, the... The, the replaying back all the events and thinking, is there anything that I could have done differently that would have led us to a different outcome? You don't have to imagine that you've actually experienced it. And I don't want to make light of running away. I mean, kids do for all kinds of reasons. But what would that be like for you to get a runaway from home note? Now, let me ask you this. 
What does God do with a runaway? What does our heavenly father do when he gets a note? God, I'm leaving. And what if we are the runaway? If you have your Bible, I want to invite you to turn to Jonah chapter 1. Jonah chapter 1. It is towards the end of your Old Testament, the book of Jonah. Now, for most of us, when we think about Jonah, we think about a big fish. We think about the whale, right? Whether we grew up in Sunday school, we can remember on the felt board, there was Jonah, there was the fish. Or maybe you haven't even grown up in church, but you've known that there's this guy, Jonah, and the Bible says he got swallowed by fish. And maybe that's part of the reason why you don't believe the Bible. It's like stories like this. But for many of us, we think about Jonah as the guy who got swallowed by a fish. But Jonah is not about the fish. It's about something else as a book. The, the book of Jonah is not about a fish or a whale. It's about the heart. It's about the human heart and some of the worst tendencies that can rise up inside of God's people. And the book of Jonah is about God's heart, about God's heart for his people and for our world. And so follow along with me. We're going to dive in, and over the next four weeks, we're going to explore this explosive story of Jonah, but we're going to dive in today into the first chapter. Jonah begins, it, it says this, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Now that, that phrase, the word of the Lord came, is a technical Hebrew phrase that identifies somebody as a prophet. It's the same way many prophetic books in the Bible begin, Amos and Obadiah and Isaiah, the word of the Lord came. And so as readers of this, we, we, we get one verse in and we say, okay, I'm reading prophetic literature. The, Jonah is a prophet. This is prophetic literature. Now, for, for many of us, we think about a prophet as somebody who tells the future. Maybe that's what comes into your mind, somebody who predicts future events. And sometimes prophets do that in the Bible. But more often than not, what prophets do is they hold up a mirror. Prophets function in the Bible as a way of, of God saying to his people, this is what you're like. And if any of you have looked at a mirror on a bad hair day, you're like, I look like that? And, and, and what God wants to do with Israel and through his word, what God wants to do in us is to hold up our mirror and say, this is what you're like. But the way that God does that through the book of Jonah is so different from every other prophet. And that's what makes this fascinating. The way that God holds up the mirror through Jonah is not through a long monologue and a prophet saying, here's all the things you're doing wrong, Israel. It's through a narrative. It's through a story. And that story arrests our attention right from the start. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. <clears throat> now, 
When Jonah heard God say this to him, his jaw must have hit the floor. Because Nineveh was not part of Israel. Jonah thought God would say, go to the great city of Jerusalem, go somewhere in Israel. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. And at the time, this was written, Assyria was a brutally violent and oppressive empire. They would have been viewed as Israel's enemy. And God says to Jonah, go be a prophet to the Assyrians. Now, this, may, this would have been hard for anybody. But it may have been especially hard for Jonah. Because the only other time Jonah is referenced in the Old Testament is 2 Kings 14. When Jonah is prophesying victory to Israel politically, to a wicked king, Jeroboam II, Jonah is saying, hey, God is going to bless your plans. You're going to prosper. Israel's going to expand. So, so Jonah, the only thing we know about him is that he is the guy who prophesies the, the expansion and the prospering of Israel politically and nationally. And now God says to that guy, yeah, go to your rival, not even a rival, go to your enemy and talk about me because I care about them and their wicked behavior. I want you to confront it. This was not in the five-year plan for Jonah. When he drew it up, when, when he thought about being a prophet and going into the ministry, whatever that looked like for him, he did not envision this moment. Go to Nineveh. And so what does he do? Well, he, he runs. Look at the next verse. It says, but Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port after paying the fare. He went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Now, Tarshish was on the, the west side of Spain, bordering the Atlantic. It was on the coast. And this was more than 2,000 miles away from where Jonah was currently. That's the distance from Atlanta to L.A., Jonah is wanting to go that far, not in a plane, not in a car, but on a boat. I mean, he literally, he is trying to get as far as he can away from the place that God told him to go. Now, why? Why is Jonah running? It seems to us at first blush like he's running because he's afraid, because we would all be afraid. I mean, God saying this to Jonah would be like God saying to you and I during World War II, go to Nazi Germany, go to Berlin, and talk about how wicked the people are there. We'd be terrified. So we read this, and you know, first we think, okay, well, Jonah's afraid, but that's not it. Because this book peels back the layers on Jonah's heart, and what we find in this book is that the reason Jonah does not want to go, the reason he heads 2,000 miles in the opposite direction is because he has contempt and dislike and hatred for the Assyrian people. He knows about them. The whole world knew about the horrific things that they did. I can't even share them this morning. I mean, this was a brutally violent and evil people. And Jonah hated them. 
And, and Jonah thought that if he went, there was a possibility that God would work in their hearts and that they would repent and that God would find a way to forgive them. And Jonah thinks the world is a much better place where the Assyrians are not forgiven. That's why he doesn't want to go. Maybe he thought, I'm such a good preacher. If I go, they're going to all come to God. But he says, I don't even want that possibility to happen. And so he, he runs. Now, Jonah's heart is, is expressed perfectly through a poem by John Ortberg, who's writing in the, in the style of a Dr. Seuss fable. I want to read it to you. This is what Jonah's heart looks like in this moment. It's as if God says to Jonah, could you, would you go preach? Could you, would you go reach the people in Assyria? For you fit my criteria. And it's as if Jonah replies, I would not go there on a boat. I would not go there on a float. I would not go there in a gale. I would not go there in a whale. I do not like the people there. If they all died, I would not care. I will not go to that great town. I'd rather choke. I'd rather drown. I will not go by land or sea. So stop this talk and let me be. That's Jonah's runaway note. That's his heart. And then he tries to run more than 2,000 miles in the opposite direction. Now, what does God do with a runaway? What does God do? Look at the next verse. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. Literally, it's the ship considered breaking up in Hebrew. It's really interesting. The ship thought about, this is rough. I'm going to break up. Now, this word for sent, God sent a great wind after Jonah. It literally is the word for throw or to hurl something. It's the same word used of when Saul hurled a javelin at David. So God is hurling, God is throwing a great wind at Jonah. The next verse says, All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. The first people who pray in this story, it's not the prophet, it's the pagan sailors. They cry out to their own God, these are polytheists, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. And this gives you an idea of how desperate these men were. This was their livelihood. They lost any possibility of making money when they threw their stuff into the sea. But they think they're going to die. They're desperate. But Jonah, meanwhile, so they're all desperate. They're throwing stuff into the sea. They're praying. Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. And the Hebrew scholars point out the re repeated use of the word down in chapter 1. It says that Jonah went down to Joppa, and then Jonah went down below the deck. And then it's going to say Jonah will go down into the sea, and then Jonah will go down into the belly of the great fish. 
And scholars point out that 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 word and that image of him going down, it represents what's happening internally in Jonah as well. That as he's persisting in his disobedience, he's going further and further down. And not only is his sin, is it deepening, it's also deadening him. It's numbing him. You know, it's interesting, this phrase, when it says he fell into a deep sleep, it's a very rare phrase. And it's used a few times. One of the times it's used is when Adam is put into a deep sleep in the Garden of Eden for God to take a rib out. So God's going to do surgery. He puts him in a deep sleep. This is in the middle of a hurricane, essentially. But Jonah is in a deep sleep because he's gone down and down and down. And so what scholars point out is that our sin functions like that. Listen, when we sin, when we persist in disobedience, it has a numbing effect on our soul. How many of you have ever been driving somewhere and then you pull into the parking lot, maybe it's your place of business where you work, maybe it's your kid's school, you're in the car line, and then all of a sudden you have this moment and you say, I don't remember the last 10 minutes. I have no idea what's happened. I'm here. The last thing I remember is I was at my house and now I'm here, which is kind of terrifying if you think about it because you're, you're operating a motor vehicle, right? But, but you ha- and we all have this. You have these moments where you're basically asleep at the wheel. You're just in a routine. Sometimes I, I do this weird thing where if I'm on the phone, I, without even being conscious of it, I'll take like my keys or my wallet and I will like go and set them in random places. I have found my wallet in the pantry before. It's very weird and bizarre. But it's like I'm asleep even while I'm awake. And and, and part of what the the author of Jonah wants us to to see is that that can happen to us spiritually because of our sin. That there's a numbing effect and that we lose touch with reality and the danger that we're not just putting ourselves in but putting other people around us in. We go further and further down. Well, the, the captain of the boat, he has to come and wake up Jonah, and he's in a panic, and he says, Jonah, how can you sleep? Pray to your God, just like we're all praying. And then the the sailors, they're really desperate, so they try to figure out what the problem is, who the problem is, by casting lots, which is an ancient way of dice rolling. And so they basically do this, and, and, and it points to Jonah. And so these are superstitious guys, and they say, Jonah, what's your deal? I mean, explain yourself. Why are we in this storm? And then Jonah says something that terrifies them. Jonah, he says, well, I'm a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord. Oh, yeah, he's the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. And I'm running from him. Now, this is ironic, isn't it? Because Jonah says, I worship, or, or in your translation, it might say, I fear the Lord. And if we're reading this, we're thinking, no, you don't. No, you do not worship God. You're running from God. And do you really believe he made the sea? Jonah, you're running in a boat. And as a Hebrew boy, you know, he would have known Psalm 139, which says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee? If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand 
will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. So Jonah, he knows all this truth. He knows that, that God made the land and the sea and that he can't run away, and yet he's running. There are these deep inconsistencies between his belief and his behavior. But he says this, and the, and the sailors, they think this is a terrible idea, what he's about to say, because Jonah, he, he, he says this. He says, pick me up and throw me into the sea to fix this. And it will become calm. I know that it's my fault that this great storm has come upon you. And the sailors, I think this is a terrible idea because, okay, God's mad at you. And if we kill you, God's going to get even more mad. Jonah says, throw me in. Now, there are two ways to interpret this. And scholars are divided. Commentators, they, they are divided on which of these two ways is accurate. One way to interpret this is that Jonah has had a change of heart. That Jonah has, he's come to his senses, he's realized how foolish he is, and that his actions and decisions have put the sailors in danger, and he says, throw me in. I'll be the sacrificial lamb. The other way to interpret this is that Jonah is still running from God. Because what would be the surest way to make sure that I don't have to go to Nineveh. Just throw me into the ocean. In other words, I'd rather die than cooperate with your plan to bring forgiveness and grace to those people. And I think that that is where Jonah's heart is at. Based on the story, how it unfolds, I think, and this is Matt, this isn't Bible, I think if Jonah really wanted to go, if he, if he really was repentant, I think he would say, guys, take me back to the port. I got to go to Nineveh because I'm running from God. He says, throw me into the sea. Again, the sailors, they're terrified, but they have no options because they have tried praying. They've thrown their stuff into the ocean. And so they, in their desperation, they pray to the God of, of, of Israel, to the Hebrew God, and say, please don't punish us. And then they throw Jonah in. It says, they took Jonah, threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. And then we read something in the story that's such a surprise, it would have been a shock to the first readers of this literature. It says this, at this, the men, the sailors, greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. The people in the story who worship God truly, not just with what they say, but with what they do, are the pagan sailors. And when it says they made an offering, they offered a sacrifice, they didn't do that on their boat. I mean, they didn't do this on a wooden boat in the middle of the sea, build a fire. They got back to land, went to a, a Hebrew temple, and they made an offering to God, and they made promises to God. They become followers of Yahweh. How amazing is it that God can use anything and everything to bring people to himself, even our stubborn, willful, hardened hearts, our disobedience? God is not limited by that. God brings these men to himself, even through Jonah's disobedience. What happens to Jonah? Well, in the next verse, it says, Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days 
and three nights, and we're going to unpack his experience next week. God provides a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and he's in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, what are we to take from this story, from the first part of this explosive, prophetic narrative that comes to us in the Bible? What are we to take from this? It's not about the fish. It's not. It's about our hearts. Again, there's something about the human heart, something about our hearts that God is wanting to expose and confront through this. You know, for many of us, we, we hear this story. I, I know I do, and, and I, I, I just, over and over again, I start to think this thought. What is with this guy? I mean, good night. Can he just get it together? I mean, I, you know, I think if God came to me and told me to do something, I would do it and start being like, gosh, he's asleep and all of these things. And at the exact moment that we begin to feel that way, it's like God, through his word, holds up a mirror and says, no, this is showing you what's true about you and your heart. I want to tell you four things we see in Jonah in this chapter to help humanize him, connect us to him. Jonah, he's committed to his own vision for his life, right? Jonah is absorbed with himself, and he's indifferent to others. Jonah has contradictions between his beliefs and his behavior. And Jonah is lacking compassion for people far from God. And at the moment we read this story... This is why this is so powerful. It's brilliant literature. When we read this story and we begin to self-feel, self-righteous, it's like God holds up this mirror and says, oh, really? Oh, really? So you are never overly committed to your vision for your own life that you miss out on what God wants to do. You never have any contradictions between what you believe and how you behave. Oh, really? You're never lacking compassion for people who are far from God, which causes you to miss out on what God wants to do. See, if we have ears to hear, this story is so challenging. Because here's what's true. I love what Rich Velotis says. He says, running from God is a universal struggle. Running from God is a universal struggle. I may not be fleeing to Tarshish, but I am definitely running away from God in different parts of my life and for a lot of my life. You know, some of us today, we are running right now from God externally. I mean, perhaps you, part of your story is you, you disengaged from the church and from relationships with Christians and you wanted nothing to do with God. And so you literally didn't set foot in a church building for years. And maybe you're here today, but that's part of your story. Or maybe you're sitting here, but you are intent on fleeing from God. But here's what's true. Many of us, we don't run externally, but we, but we run internally from God. That we can come in, and listen, I, speaking from my own experience, we can do the right things and we can come to church and read the Bible, but we can be insistent on our own vision for our life. We don't want to give up control. 
Like Jonah, we can run from God by not applying, not behaving in a way that's consistent with what we believe. Because we're selective. We say, I love what Jesus says about heaven. I love that. But I don't like what he says about loving your enemies, so I'm not going to do that. So we run. Or there's people in our lives that are really hard to love. And so the way we run from God is we run from allowing him to love others through us. Running from God is a universal struggle. So what does this book have to say to runners, to people like us? Here's what this chapter says to us today, that God runs after those who run from him. This is what's true about God. God runs after those who run from him. Why doesn't God just start over with someone else to go to Nineveh? I mean, clearly, Jonah is unfit to be the messenger of his forgiveness and grace. Why doesn't God just pick someone else? Because God is intent on pursuing Jonah and using Jonah. A lot of us, we, we hear the story and we think that God is punishing Jonah. And maybe that feeds into the way you see God, that there goes God again. He's so concerned with everybody obeying him. He's pursuing, he's punishing. Listen, I, I would say that, that, that God in this story, he's not punishing Jonah. He is pursuing Jonah. Now, it's with a severe mercy. But he's pursuing Jonah, just like he pursues us. And why? Again, the reason why God is hurling a, a storm like a javelin at Jonah, the reason why he's pursuing him is because he loves him. It's because he wants Jonah to be a part of what he's doing, of what God is doing. God is after the most fulfilling and life-giving direction for Jonah's life that he could possibly go. That's what God wants for him. But Jonah is so fixated on his deal and on how he feels, he can't see it. You know, it's like a kid who is so insistent on, on what he wants to do that he misses out on the chance to do something greater. I mean, this week I'm taking our kids to Wilderness at the Smokies. It's an indoor water park. Maybe you've heard of it. They've never been. And as I've told them, hey, we're going, it's like, Dad, what is this place? And, and, and then it's like, are, are you sure this is going to be fun? One of them asked me, that, are you sure this is going to, because they've never been, right? And, and so there's a part of them that, that wants to say, you know, Dad, I would rather just stay here and watch YouTube videos and play video games. I'm good. But I love them and I want them to experience this with me. You see, God is after Jonah's heart and he wants something so much bigger. He's saying, Jonah, you can be a part of a story way bigger than yourself. This is the kind of God that we have. He runs after those who run from him. I love what Tim Mackey says. He, he says, Jonah thinks he is running for his life. In fact, he is running from his life. That's so profound. 
And I think for me, there's so many places in my life where I'm running for my life. I'm running for what I think ought to be my life. And I'm running from it. I'm running from the very life that God wants for me. And part of what God wants Jonah to hear and Israel to hear and us to hear today is that we are not the only ones that God is running after. I want you to think about this story. God runs after those who run from him. God is running after the Ninevites. These godless people that Jonah hates. And this book comes to Israel and comes to us as a rebuke at the small-minded, self-righteous, judgmental tendencies that can develop inside of God's people. Because here's what's true for Israel. This is why they got this letter, this book. They lost sight of the fact that they were blessed to be a blessing, that God loved the world. And they began viewing themselves as better than other people. And it's like God wants to deliver this mail to them and say, you're not better. The pagan sailors in the story, those are the ones who are open and attentive to God's working. It's not the Israelite. And, and God is wanting to confront them and say, the only reason why you are my people is sheer grace. You're not better than them. And so for us today, there is always a tendency that develops inside of God's people to view ourselves as better than outsiders. And this book is confronting that in a major way. And God's saying, no, I'm running after the people who are far from me. So what do we do with this today? And you know, how do we respond to this? There's a song by Corey Asbury that talks about the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. And that's what we see in this story. It's relentless, the way God chases Jonah down, the way that God is chasing the hearts of the Ninevites. It's this wild love that leaves the 99 for the one. And so we're going to sing this, and I, I just want to invite you to ponder the reality of what we're singing, that this is what God does. God chases after people who are far from him. And <clears throat> this is what God is doing even now. And some of you, you've been running from God in different parts of your, your life. And God is running after you today, right now, even through this message. In God's providence, he's saying, I'm coming after you. I won't give up on you. I love you. And so as you listen to this, maybe reflect on that and reflect on the people in your life that are hard to love. <clears throat> because here's what's true about everything we're about to sing. That is how God loves the people that you dislike and that you have a hard time loving. The modern-day Ninevites, whoever they are for you, that your heart tends to become hard towards. God loves those people. And so as we hear this song, it just, you know, it's, God, would you shape my heart? Would you help me to become more like you? There's a, a woman named Christina. When Christina was 10 years old, her dad died. And at 18, she graduated high school and she was tired of being the good girl and so she moved out of the house, but first she took all of her mom's cash and she ran 
And she went off and she, she spent everything she had. And when she ran out of money, she became desperate. She did what many young women do in her city in Brazil. She used her looks to turn a profit. And as she engaged in this lifestyle, she just became more and more desperate and tired and hungry and tired and tired of being tired and just exhausted. Meanwhile, Christina's mom, wrecked with sorrow, empties her bank account, everything she has left, and she prints thousands of pictures of Christina. And she goes around the city and she's putting these photos up of Christina everywhere she can. And one day, Christina stumbles into this bar and she, she sees a bulletin board and she sees her picture on it. She walks up and she, she, she touches the picture and she takes it off the, the board and then she, she turns it over. And on the other side of this picture is a handwritten note and here's what it says. Whatever you've done, Whatever you've become, it doesn't matter. Please come home. And she did. And the, the love of the mother in that story is a dim hint of the love of God for you. May God today, just through this, may he confront the ways that we don't see ourselves as worthy of love, the way we see others as not worthy of his love. And may God remind us that he is that parent. And he gave it all. He sacrificed his very son to reconcile you to him. So what does God do with runaways? What does God do? God chases after them. Lord, we, we thank you for your grace and your incredible love. And God, all of us today, we, we will never fully get our arms around it or understand it. But we're just in awe of the truth that you never give up on us, God, and you're relentless. And even now, Lord, through your word, through the, the different circumstances in our lives, you are after our hearts. And so, God, would you help all of us to respond to you today? And would you help soften the hardened areas in our hearts where we view other people as less than or less worthy of your love? God, would you confront that? Help us to have ears to hear. So, Father, we just give you thanks for your amazing, unending, overwhelming love, and we worship you in Jesus' name.